dickheads like a pink laser beam of truth jaunting straight from space to your brain hole. I am your host, David Agronoff, and I am here to talk to you today about a science fiction classic, The Star's My Destination by Alfred Bester. And if you're on YouTube, I've got the SF Masterworks uh, version that I just finished reading. But the reason why I'm doing this book is because I literally have the author who wrote the book on the book uh, returning to the Dickheads podcast, who you might remember from our Lies Inc. slash the Unteleported Man episode, D. Harlan Wilson, Professor David Harlan Wilson of Wright State University and the author of many, many, many books, including the latest, his latest the Star's My Destination, a Literary Companion. David, welcome back to the show. Thank you, sir. Happy to be here again. You've, been, you've got a, a bunch of plays out recently, too. And uh, so definitely before we get into the, the Alfred Bester thing, do you want to tell the folks what your uh, latest uh, plays are? Sure. Um, the plays, it's just a collection of two plays called Jack and Ape and the Finger Men. And I actually... Technically, you, yeah, there it is. And that was put out by the, the publishing company that I run, Anti-Oedipus Press. Now, I, I've actually, I think that's the third book of mine that I put out through AOP. And I do that because every time I put out one of my own books, it's to try, it's to experiment, do some sort of experiment. So in this case, I was trying a new, that, do you have the hardcover? Or a I do not. I have the paperback. So they had a new hardcover technology, and rather than uh, experiment on one of my authors, I experimented on myself. So that's why I, I put it out through AOP. But, I, you know, I, I enjoy those plays, and some of, one of them actually was published in, in the Café Ariel. And mm -hmm. uh, as I say, well, it's bullshit, but there, there's a foreword or an acknowledgement or something wherein I say that they've been um, – one of them, at least, was put on in Copenhagen. I forgot what I said in the actual in the actual <laughs> right. book. Uh, it didn't happen. I, I say more than that, as I tend to do, <laughs> I lie, essentially. But uh, yeah, that that's I didn't really promote that very much. This year, I'm more involved. I have two books coming out. Actually, the one we're going to talk about the uh, uh, that's out, uh, the Critical Companion to Bester's The Stars My Destination, originally titled Tiger Tiger in the UK. Uh, and uh, another monograph on Minority Report, which is, um, of course, based on the Philip K. Dick story for Auteur Publishing's Constellation series, which is uh, Auteur Publishing is an imprint of Liverpool University Press. Right. And we already did an episode on Minority Report, but, you know, we'll, we'll talk about Minority Report at, at another time. But we're here to talk about Alfred Bester. So let's let's start off with um, because. You know, usually when we're talking Philip K. Dick, I know a lot about the biography of him, and I usually dive into the biography. Whenever we do a Dick Jason, for example, like our last one was Lee Brackett, um, you know, I, I did a lot of research into Lee Brackett beforehand, but because I was having you on, I decided I, was, I could let you do the biography of Alfred Bester. So can you tell us about Alfred Bester, the man? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think... I, I, I recount some bio, biographical information in the book, um, but I, boy, I was just writing. So I'm, I'm currently at work on this as we were talking about this book on Kubrick. 
And one of the things that I do in that introduction is explain how so desperately, not desperately, but how, how uninterested I am in Kubrick the man. And uh, that generally goes for most of the authors and artists that I really like, uh, including even Philip K. Dick, although I must say his biography is more fascinating to me than most authors and artists. Bester, on the other hand, uh, um, is a great book written by Jad Smith, who goes deep into the biography called Appropriately enough, Alfred Bester for University of Illinois Press's Masters, Modern Masters of Science Fiction series. I wrote that Ballard book for the same series. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've read Jed Smith's uh, John Bruner book. Was oh, yeah. that's re- Did yeah. he do that one, too? He did Bruner as well, yeah. Oh, okay. That was the first one to come out in the series, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and it's and, great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so just some you know brief background on, on Bester. He, he always sort of referred to himself as a uh, working stiff, quote unquote, as a writer. He uh, got involved with, um, I think he started in, let's say, 40s, 50s, and uh, was involved with, he kind of started out in the science fiction genre, got sick of it, went on to do other things, working in comics and TV, came back to the science fiction genre, got sick of it again, went on to be an editor uh, at, I think it was Holiday Magazine, that he did that for a while, came back to the science fiction genre, and this was uh, um, in his later career, and <clears throat> I can't remember how, how old he was when he, when he died. I think it was in 1987. Lived kind of, a, from what I could tell, lived a, a hard life, liked to, you know, drink and smoke and all of that, old school, and uh, was sort of a perpetual curmudgeon in the same vein that Barry Malzberg is, uh, especially with respect to the science fiction genre, which uh, he wrote many essays on this, and I talk about them at at length in my book, and I even, to some degree, try to adopt the the tone of Bester's rancor (laughs) towards the science fiction genre in my book. Um, Although what I'm doing is, you know, pretty much straight criticism, but I do amp it up a little bit. Now, for uh, longtime listeners of the Dickheads podcast might remember that Barry Maltzberg referred to Alfred Bester as, quote, uh, the very best among us. And then he said, quote, he was a son of a bitch, but I loved him and he was the best among us. Yeah. And I can't tell, honestly, though, I can't tell if he liked him or not. Um, He We were talking about how Barry's been emailing me as of late more frequently than usual. And that's what he does in his emails. He'll say, God, that bester was a son of a bitch. God damn him. And then then he'll say, you know, well, he was was a good guy and he did this, that and the other. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm kind of I don't want to I want Barry to keep send. I want to keep that stream of consciousness. There's (laughs) this thing going on with that. So I want to keep it going. And uh, uh, I don't know. I can't figure it out. And that's fine. You know. I mean, yeah. like I said, I, I actually prefer to know less of the authors that I really like. Uh, you know, once you <laughs> sometimes when you get to know them, it, it, I so I'll say that I won't mention any names, but I have uh, and really enjoyed certain authors work. And then when I got to know the authors, it uh, sort of infected how I um, perceive their work. And I don't sure. know as much. That's my problem. But nonetheless, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about Bester as like what he was doing before. Oh, and incidentally, if I can, sorry to interrupt. Sure. I don't think I'd like 
Bester one bit. Yeah. I'm glad that I never met him. And I, the, the, as I was writing this book, I struggled to, you know, you have to convey some biographical information, but I kind of wanted to know as little about him personally uh, as I could, because um, I really did, despite its many flaws, uh, The Stars My Destination was a formative novel for me. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, totally. And, and look, um, you know, as somebody who doesn't smoke, drink, is vegan, like you wouldn't think that you'd think that knowing much more about Philip K. Dick would have turned me off. But for part of it for me is, is that I find it so fascinating that he lived the way that he did and was able to be as productive as he was. But also to me, he's an exception. He's an exception. Yeah. 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 He was just such a fascinating character, of course. Um, now, as far as Bester goes, like before this novel came out, he didn't have a huge body of work. And even by the end of his life, he didn't have a huge body of work either. But what what built up to the stars, my destination slash Tiger Tiger? So the first book, this first novel uh, was The Demolished Man. And, uh, you know, since we announced this podcast on, on online, a lot of people have been chiming in as to whether the, the, the Demolished Man is often compared to The Stars My Destination. And, and you can kind of right. tell about people depending upon which one they, they, they like the most. But it, it's funny, people seem to have that need to express which one they like most because it says something about them in terms of their relationship with not just Bester, but with the science fiction genre, because they're both they're both quite similar, yet they diverge considerably from one another. And one of my theses in the book is that The Demolished Man, which won, what award was it? It won the- It was the big, first Hugo award winning. Okay, okay, right. It was Hugo. Yeah. Um, the first ever. And the stars did not win any big, or start, the stars, my destination didn't win any big awards, but I- I don't want to say that it's generally been perceived as the better book, although it kind of has. But the moment you say that, then people start chiming in saying, what the hell are you talking about? But in any case, my one of my theses in the book is is that uh, the stars, my destination is what Bester really wanted to do in the demolish man. And between the demolish man and, and stars, he sort of found the voice and uh, elevated the, among other things, the sort of experimental nature of that book and his writing and the innovation <clears throat> that not only he wanted to employ in his own writing, but that he wanted to see more of in the science fiction genre. I will say that uh, that year, Robert Heinlein won uh, his first Hugo for Double Star. So he probably didn't have a chance to win uh, <laughs> in, right. in 56. And um, uh, because I think that that was a lifetime achievement award that year. I didn't even answer your question before in terms of how, you know, he got into writing and stuff. I mean, you know, like many science fiction writers, he, or any writer, he, he started placing store, selling stories to in the magazines. And I forgot how, I don't think he published that many stories before um, the demolish man, but really he only had what seven, maybe six, seven novels total. And after The Star's My Destination, uh, you could say, I don't know, a lot of people say they were really unhappy with what he wrote. But as I argue in my book, he 
never wanted to do the same thing twice. If he did anything twice, it's the demolished man and the star is my destination. But again, the star is my destination. I say, again, this is my argument is really what he wanted to sort of accomplish with the demolished man. But thereafter he, uh, he was just like me. And this is one of the reasons I like Bester. He always wanted to do something new. He was always looking for something new. Innovation was the thing. However, he, whatever he needed to do to enact that, he tried to do it. Yeah, so let's talk about the origin of this novel. Now, I know you prefer the title Tiger, Tiger. Um, yeah. And uh, so it, it was released in the UK under the title Tiger, Tiger. And it, or no, it was released in the U.S. as Tiger, Tiger, and the U.K. as Stars My Destination. No, in the U.K. as Tiger, Tiger, uh, which is from... So there are... There's a lot of intertextuality in the novel. Uh, the three main intertexts are Blake's poem, The Tiger, which is where that original title comes from. Uh, Count of Monte Cristo, which provides the uh, basically the plot structure. And then Joyce, James Joyce's portrait of the artist as a young man, which uh, to varying degrees, best that Bill, Bill Dung's roman that, that uh, Joyce enacts in his book, Bester sort of adopts it for, for his. There's a ton of other intertexts, but those are the dominant ones. And uh, that original uh, title comes from Blake's poem, which I, as you say, prefer. But they, in America, they went with the star. You know, there's nothing science fictional about Tiger, Tiger. Uh, So they went with the star is my destination, which uh, comes from a, that actually is a riff on a jingle. So Bester appropriated Basically, there's this nursery jingle in uh, a portrait of the artist as a young man that reads. And this is uh, which is a a novel about this dude, Stephen Dedalus. And that jingle reads, Stephen Dedalus is my name. Ireland is my nation. Clongows, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, is my dwelling place and heaven my expectation. I should know how to pronounce that. So Bester takes that jingle and applies it to his main character in The Star is My Destination. And it reads, Scully Foyle is my name and Terra is my nation. Deep Space is my dwelling place. The Star is my destination. And that, he lifts that uh, latter part for, or I don't think he did, the, uh, an editor did. Because basically yeah. the editor said, Tiger, Tiger doesn't have anything science fictional about it. We want to market it in that capacity. That's just said, I don't give a shit, do what you want. And that's what they came up with because it's a little misleading. I remember when I was first told to read this book, the stars, my destination, it's missing a verb or something, right? Mm -hmm. The star, but it makes sense within the context of that um, stanza. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and I got to say, I personally prefer the title um, just because tiger, tiger, I get it now that I've read it, but I can understand that, where the publisher might be like, that doesn't tell the reader anything about what they're going to get. And, and yeah. I think at least the stars, my destination, especially because I think I personally think it says something about the final act of the book. And yeah. we're going to, we can yeah. spoil the book and assume that at this point, if you've, you've listened this far, you should know that we think it's worth you reading. You should go read it and come back. If you haven't, now, I know some people use these episodes as cliff notes for, like, wanting to know about the science fiction canon, but they're never planning on reading it. So just know that, that there are some people that are out there that are, are this is going to be all they know about it. Yeah. So. No, you're absolutely right that, that 
the U.S. title denotes it's, well, the Nietzschean, Zarathustrian uh, um, space that Gully Foyle comes to inhabit at the end, right? He becomes a, a, a Kubrickian star child or something of this nature, whereas Tiger Tiger points more towards basically what he what he has to overcome in himself in order to become that star child or whatever you want to call him at the end. Right. Got it. Okay. So now, um, but, uh, I don't know because at the beginning of stars, Gully is stranded, uh, on a ship. Basically what sets the whole narrative in motion is, is that somebody passes him by without picking him up and he gets pissed. He becomes a tiger, so to speak. And, uh, goes from there. But I don't know if that, I think that comes more from, uh, I shouldn't say that. I was gonna, going to say that the Count of Monte Cristo than anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's, that's the whole that, revenge. That's where he took the lead for the plot. Yeah, and that's the whole revenge storyline, which, you know, sure. the Count of Monte Cristo is like the ultimate revenge story. And we've seen so many revenge movies and things, and it, 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 you know, in the past, but in 1955, there wasn't as many revenge stories to build upon. And he was building upon, you know, this, this classic. And and what are some of the ways that he builds on the kind of money Christo that may be less obvious than just the revenge part of it? Like how well, is he commenting on it? There's a, there's a big, a big part of it is, uh, you know, the count of Monte Cristo, uh, a large part of that narrative has the protagonist in, in jail. Right. I, I, I forgot how long he's actually in there. But Gully spends quite a bit of time in this place called the Gouffre Martel. Again, I'm probably mispronouncing that where he he gets help from somebody like the protagonist in Count of Monte Cristo, who basically educates him and sets him on his journey towards enlightenment. Uh, in Stars, it's a woman named Gisbella McQueen or Jizz, as she's called, and they actually escape together, and uh, eventually, as Gully does with all of the women in this book, <laughs> he sort of uses them to, uh, uh, to better himself, and then, you know, dumps them in the end. Uh, as you, and, I think, And we'll with, talk about the misogyny in this book yeah, in you greater depth later. In your, in your review, there's a lot of problems with representations of race and gender in this book, which I, which I call out, for sure. Um, yeah, there, there are lots of issues with those and we'll, we'll get further into that, but like sticking with like the, the origin and the structure of this, um, there's a lot of, you know, Bester, you know, for as critical as he is of science fiction. And I think one of the things that is lost for a lot of people is how he is commenting on the genre through the kind of meta text of this book. Mm-hmm. There is obvious it's obvious that he has been reading the genre and that he's commenting on it. And I know I said in my review that unlike, you know, there's a lot that it shares with some of the early science fiction with, you can tell that Von Vogt was an influence on him, just like he was on PKD. Von Vogt was like the science fiction writer of the forties. You know, he is not as remembered as, as some of the ones that have lived on quite as well, but unlike, one of the things that I think makes Bester different from PKD and Von Vogt is that he's not plotting with the I Ching or by dreams, you know, 
which Von Vogt, one of the reasons why his books are so fucking insane is because he would be like, oh, I dreamed about a red ball. So now the novel is going to be about a red ball. And, you know, it, it, so some of the Von Vogt novels just take left turns that are just insane. And so, you know, I've only read Null A. Oh, really? Yeah. Which, is there one that you'd recommend above others? Well, Voyage of the Space Beagle, I would say, is another one. But Nolle is the one that I've read the most recently. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I guess what I'm saying is, is, is like, I think the next way that we got to go is talk about how Bester is commenting on Frankenstein, the Island of Dr. Moreau, <laughs> Golden Age science fiction. He is using this text and the structure of because and maybe I'm oversimplifying this, but you have Gully who starts the book as a prisoner and a simpleton and like stereotype common man. That's that's stereotype common man. And like a science fiction writer, he's traveling the stars with his mind at the end. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's what what is what makes the novel kind of cool is that his main character is becoming you know, and at the time, like the Superman storylines with Campbell, like if you wanted to get sold with Campbell, you sell him a Superman story, right? Right. And, and so Bester, in a little, a lot of ways, he starts off with the jaunt thing. And like wh- while I was reading it, I kind of felt like the jaunting kind of got lost in it. But mm-hmm. then what it comes back. I know this it, is a lot it, of words, you know, but I'm processing it, that I just finished reading this book myself. You know, there's a point where jaunting, which is ridiculous, incidentally, I mean, the epitome of a goofy sci fi sort of motif. Uh, There's a point where I I remember reading it uh, uh, originally thinking like, you know, this is a MacGuffin, right? Uh, It's just when did you read this originally? How long ago did you read it? Probably uh, mid 90s. Right. And I guess I should have asked, like, why you chose like. Oh, so, you know, I. talk about it at the end of the book um, it's right when I I didn't get into science fiction literature until I started graduate school I was you know as a kid I was into movies and stuff uh, Star Wars Star Trek that sort of thing but not not that much maybe Star Wars more than anything and um, when I went to do my master's degree in English at UMass Boston I met this guy Bob Crosley who became my mentor great guy um, who basically I did an independent study with him and he assigned a bunch, he gave me a bunch of books to read and it was a science fiction based and I didn't know anything about it. He's like, I took a class with him called end of the world, end of the world. It was an apocalyptic literature class. And I liked the stuff we read and he just assigned another book was, uh, look, we were talking about Le Guin before we started today was, uh, you know, left hand of darkness. Um, but best, the stars, my destination was one of them. So, and that's it. And, and I liked it so much, but I was so, you know, I'm kind of the voice that I use in my critical companions a little bit over the top. I'm not quite as enthusiastic about any book, let alone the stars, my destination as I purport to be. But when I was younger, I was so easily influenced. And this one in particular, I loved it so much. I started writing a screenplay. I didn't know what the fuck I was doing, you know, but whatever I figured. (laughs) I don't know what I figured. I thought I could do anything. But 
uh, above all, I just had this feeling like, boy, there's something about this book that I, I really love. And I kept coming back to it over the years. So uh, uh, it, it had to do with, uh, um, with Bester's what's he doing in terms of the science fiction genre with this book? Like, what does this book do? How does it function? With well, and how is he commenting on the mega text? You know, I mean, like this is pre David Pringle's guide to science fiction and right. whatever. But in 1955, he was using this story as a meta textual comment on the genre, basically. Yeah. Right. So. Yes. Which is which is often overlooked when people talk about this book. Right. And, uh, you know, when, when it came out, people realized what it was. Uh, 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 they realized it like I did when I read it for the first time. Let's see, you know, 40 years after it came out. Um, it was what came to be known as and I can't remember. This seemed to be more unique to Bester than anybody else, but I could be mistaken. An instance of pyrotechnic fiction. Have you ever heard that expression before? Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure I've I've heard that before. Yeah, but when I when I hear that term, for me, it actually ties in with this whole business of meta narration that that Bester is involved with, and he wrote a lot of essays about the science fiction genre, and specifically, he didn't often name names. Sometimes he did, but for the most part, he took issue with science fiction, you know, mid 20th century, science fiction editors, publishers, authors, and readers. <laughs> and yeah. he basically took them apart. And he was like, this is why you guys are stupid. This is why you're silly. This is why this genre is going to tank if you don't do something different. Right, and, which is uh, probably one of the reasons why you have like Maltzberg saying in the same breath, he was a son of a bitch and he was the best among us, like in the same sense, right? Well, you know. And uh, and I must say, like, so <laughs> I won't name names either. And uh, there was I worked with several editors on my book, one of which uh, took offense to the Besterian tone that I adopt, which essentially um, this editor took it personally. And, uh, you know, to put it crudely, Bester kind of came out and said, look, you're all worse than children, you, you people that are involved with this science fiction business. You don't know what you're doing. You're stupider than me. And uh, you should follow my lead. And nobody's doing it, so fuck you. And he said this basically in essay after essay. And then, you know, he proceeded to, to leave the genre for a while. But every time he came back, based upon, I'd say based upon the success of, of Stars Alone, but also The Demolished Man, which did win the Hugo. Yeah. He was always welcome back. And, and it, I don't know. It's like people had Stockholm syndrome or something, because then he'd write some more essays and, and beat some people up again and, and disappear. And then he came back. So uh, uh, at any rate, I which, think, by the way, is very in your wheelhouse, too. I mean, speaking as the guy who wrote the essay in the front of the Barry Maltzberg re-edition, right. you know, declaring science fiction in the 21st century as dead. So. You know, well, uh, I say that it's dead now, but that it's uh, um, and again, I'm going a little over the top in that introduction. But I do believe to some degree that science fiction is a 20th century phenomenon. It's a historical artifact. Um, not not to say that people aren't, you know, <laughs> tweaking things nowadays and, and doing some things uh, uh, 
I, I can't even say because I don't read much contemporary science fiction. Most of what I read is in the 20th, you know, it actually most science fiction exists in the 20th century. Right. Uh, I think we're still labeled science fiction, but if you think about it, yes, there's always new ideas out there, right? There's always ways you can tweak yeah. technology, let's say, and move further into this future or that or future or this alternate reality or whatever. Well, and I had that experience with, you know, every once in a while I'll say, um, like, for example, Neil Asher's The Skinner, I'll say, I always refer to it as one of my favorite 21st century science fiction novels. And people are always like, well, why are you pointing out that it's 21st century? And it's because, because I like 20th century science fiction so much more, you know, and I think it's important to just to make the distinction because um, I think you're right. The 20th century is so crucial and important to science fiction in the same way that if you're talking about, for example, War of the Worlds or Time Machine, that it's 19th century like pre-science fiction that, you know, Gernsbeck hadn't even given it the name. Don Wolheim hadn't even put it on the cover of the first book to have the term science fiction on it, you know? Well, it was, and, and you know, those were uh, Wells' science fiction, or excuse me, scientific, scientific romances. Yeah, yeah. And then Gernsbeck, what did he call it? Science fiction, I think. Yeah. Well, technically, uh, Don Wolheim was the first to use the term science fiction on the Pocket Guide to Science Fiction in the 30s. Oh. And so he was the first to use it on the cover of a book. Let me make one more one more uh, point about 21st century science fiction. Here's sure. the thing. Here's my biggest problem with it. I think, and you know, Ballard was saying this in the 60s, in order to uh, be new, and this is something I try to do in my own fiction, um, to genuinely make it new, let's say, the, the Ezra Poundian make it new uh, uh, sort of initiative. Inner space is where it's at. That's how you do it. I, I, I'm not I'm not talking about like, uh, uh, um, you know, experimental fiction for where you're fucking around with uh, uh, um, the organization of, of text. Uh, I don't give a shit about that. Uh, people are not doing interesting things with inner space. Yeah. Like they could, I think, in the 21st century with science fiction. Every, all that other stuff, you know, all, everything we've mentioned so far are motifs that have been done before. You know, uh, if you're going to do something new, you get, and it's not outer space, it's here. I mean, you can put, you know, you can do both, obviously. Bester does, as you indicated in, in Stars, right? It begins in outer space and it becomes more of an exploration of Gully Foyle's inner space, uh, which is one of the main reasons that I really like it. There, Bester's, uh, there are some vague experimental efforts in that book uh, where he integrates image as well as does some things with text. I could care less about that. And they don't even need to be in there. In fact, I think they, they denovate the, what, what his innovations in that text. He, he really was. I mean, can we name names who he's pointing the finger at? I'm sure he's, he's pointing at Edgar Wilhelm's, oh, your Judy Delbert. Yeah. Yeah. Do we know who he's really pointing the finger at? I mean, is Campbell oh, there? Were, well, with Campbell, there was only a few occasions where he named names and I actually didn't know the names. I, I mentioned them in, in the book, uh, in my book. Um, and he did. It was an essay. And I think he did something like Hemingway and a movable feast where he used different names. But the people that he was talking about clearly knew who they were, as did everybody else within the historical context of when it was published. But, you know, there were occasions where, and I mentioned this in my book, too, he, he talks about, you know, Asimov, Bradbury, 
a few other folks that he respected, but he can never just say this dude's great. And it was, it's always a dude. He doesn't, you know, uh, uh, yeah. he's not, he's not into to female writers, let alone writers of color, but that's another issue. Um, yeah. I he's could, not commenting on Lee Brackett or CL Moore. <laughs> yeah. Know? I couldn't make that broad generalization because I, I don't know specifically, but I do know that he talked more about, uh, you know, white boys. So, but, but he could never just say something nice. He always had to say, even Asimov, who I think they were buddies, uh, he would say, well, I forgot what he said specifically, but he gave him a nice compliment and he said, but, you know, he sort of sucks at this. Uh, he always, he couldn't, couldn't let a sleeping dog lie ever. Um, yeah. Yeah. But well, that, he, he, from what I could gather, he was a kind of pyrotechnic guy, you know, his, uh, the character of his actual persona sort of reflected what he wrote about and certainly wasn't limited to stars and the demolished man. Um, I would say that most of the, the fiction of his, which is most of his fiction that I've read is pyrotechnic. All right. I so forgot again started <laughs> with that. Well, let's, let's talk about like some of the different like little, um, parts of the book that make up the style and the thing. So we've already talked about the jaunting, which was a little ridiculous. Yep. So the idea that in this future, it's funny because it's set up as world building in the beginning that people can uh, teleport anywhere they want in, in this future. And it kind of sets just up. Just thinking about it. Yeah. Just by thinking. But there about are it. rules. There are rules. You can't just, you, uh, uh, the right. main rule is that you can't, jaunt uh more than what uh, uh uh not off planet you can't jaunt, jaunt off planet or you'll explode or something and then you can't go more than like a thousand miles completely arbitrary uh um and you have to actually see wherever you're going to jaunt you have to in some way have been there or seen it in order to properly imagine it otherwise you know you'll explode again I, again all, all this is bullshitty science fictional artifice right right but my argument is he's doing he's not he knows what it is. And there are various ways in the book that he calls attention to it being bullshitty science fictional artifice. That's part of his meta project. In this. Again, whether I guess it doesn't matter if he intended it or not, it's there. That's my point. Yeah. Bester's doing here is he knows it's bullshit that it's, you know, that other parts of the story are going to be taking the science fiction of the future a little bit more seriously, but he doesn't really care because, you know, the weirdness of the jaunting, it doesn't matter because he's setting up a surreal future anyway. So he doesn't have to have it make perfect, logical, hard science sense. He doesn't care about that. And it's very, that first chapter where he introduces jaunting provides a, a or maybe it's in the prologue. There's a, uh, he provides a history of jaunting, how it came to be. People have critiqued that. Uh, uh, even when it came, you know, at the time of its publication or around that time. But even then, people acknowledged that it, it, it's too over the top, right? It, it's yeah. too and it's an info uh, dump, you know? Huh? Yeah, it's an info dump, too, that is against the rules right. now. But yeah. it's, a, it's right. But even, I think it was even, again, the degree to which he does it and gets away with it. Is uh, against the rules even yeah. then. Yeah. 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 Yep. 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 And that's one of the things that's interesting about it because he's, you know, just kind of sets it off and like says, yep, here's the world. And then what's interesting is because at that point I expected the jaunting to be a much bigger part 
of the book going forward. Yeah. Right. But um, the next thing that I have is, is the gutter speak is a huge part of this book. Um, yep. After the, the John team, we get that. Um, okay. So we have Gully Foyle as a main character who is, he, we've, he's got the, the tiger tattoos and he's got like kind of the Mari thing and the nomad on his forehead is a huge part of it. But I well, think uh, that, that just, just to provide context though, that tattoo is on his face. It, it looks like a tiger, but, and I won't go into how he, he uh, uh, initially gets that tattoo, but then he gets it removed uh, afterwards that Maori mask on his face. And you can't see it except when he gets mad and his face flushes red uh, which makes him look, the, I guess, either the scar or the, the skin around the scar gets red. I can't right. recall. Uh, yeah. At any rate, yeah, that's what happens there. It's a little. That, that it's, actually, it's, a, it's a cool detail. Yeah, 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 that was I was really enamored by that when I first read it. Yeah. Yeah. And so the gutter speak is this thing that he he's not a learned guy. He's a common man. He doesn't even know how to write read and he speaks this kind of like gibberish gutter speak language and he has to kind of learn to speak like what what was Bester trying to say with that so uh, uh, that's equated more than anything with uh, class unlike a lot of you know even though like with race and gender not a ton is said about it what is said about those issues is very pointed Uh, class however it, there's a lot going on with class in, in the book. And that really connects Gully, the gutter speak, with his lower class status. And what it becomes, the, the main antagonist in the book, is that Pristine of Pristine and his daughter Olivia, who Gully ends up falling in love with, that's the upper class. That's the aristocracy. This is essentially a neo-Victorian future that we exist in. Uh, and basically what we see happen is Gully, the prole, the speaker, the, the gutter speaker, crawl out of the gutter um, and work his way to the top where pristine exists and rules with, uh, you know, the proverbial iron fist. But of course, what Gully does is he doesn't, you know, kill pristine and take over. He becomes a, an overman, a Nietzschean um, ubermensch in the end, transcending uh, the whole class system. Now, was the tiger tattoos and the Mari thing, was that just a reference to the Blake, to, to Blake, or was that, or, or does it have a deeper meaning? So he, uh, certainly it's a reference to Blake. Um, it's, it came from a, a, some sort of story that Bester read where a guy actually, I can't remember if he was abducted by some tribe, uh, but he had his entire face tattooed. And I, I might have even been against his will, like Gully. Yeah. And as a result, he, I don't know, he, he was, uh, uh, his girlfriend or his wife or something didn't like him anymore. And, and uh, Bester pulled from that narrative. <laughs> and put it Which is great. I mean, it's, it's cool for the book. It really works well. Now, better in the book than in reality. Yeah. Now, um, kind of a PKD aspect of it. For, for those dickheads out there, uh, I think the Burning Man, who's kind of going to and, you know, forward and back in time and is just kind of showing there, showing up there is a really cool aspect of, of the book that at first you're like, you know, don't really understand when you're reading it, you don't understand what's happening. But 
like this Burning Man imagery. I know you're you're a big fan of it, uh, but it's one of those things that you know I related to the book even before reading it because I'd seen the images and I'd seen the things from other people who had read it. You know, and, and and you know, drawings from the now very rare graphic novel that was out in the seventies. You know, so what what do you think he was trying to say with with that? Aspect? I have that. I have that graphic novel. I spent a lot of money to get it too. It, it's, yeah. it's hard to come by. Um, well, I mean, first of all, the Burning Man is Gully himself, right? It's Gully. At the end of the novel, he uh, basically falls through this cathedral, which is burning in the rubble and he kind of catches fire or there's fire around him. I forgot, but then he proceeds to, because of this extreme sort of fear and dread and anxiety that he's experiencing, he jaunts, he's the first human being to jaunt through space and time. Right. So right. what we learn in the end is that he is, there are I think four or five, points throughout the novel where he sees this burning man which as we are you know shown in the end turns out to be himself yeah. traveling time and it's him basically kind of uh, uh you could say teaching teaching him how to become zarathustra right every that everybody is a kind of help me for even antagonists for gully to transcend the confines of himself and this is one of the reasons that i i really think or whatever Bester was trying to do, that the book in its historical context does make a teeny step forward in terms of things like, uh, uh, you know, misogyny and, and uh, uh, racism. Um, the idea is, if nothing else, the book calls attention to the fact that those things are all bullshit. It's all an illusion. It's all a construction. Uh, look at Gully. Even Gully, even this lowly prole can transcend that with a little education. I mean, that's, that's a crude way of putting it, but that, I think, is one of the book's messages. So a quote from your book or, or something that you kind of talk about that really – it was the first thing that I wrote down while reading it was the sci-fi megatext would look different without Freud. <laughs> um, and, you know, how, how do you think Freud – you talked about Freud's influence on The Demolished Man, but, like, this idea that – sci-fi in general just wouldn't be the same without Freud. Like it's kind of interesting to me. I kind of argue that, well, not kind of, um, I think it's in this book. It's either in this one or the minority report one that Freud's like, he's no different than a science fiction writer. There are some practical applications of Freudian, uh, uh, psychoanalysis, but a lot of, he was just, I mean, he, it's an, it's incredible. I, I don't think, you know, Freud's sort of everywhere. It is really incredible what he did and how prolific he was. But it's no different than uh, uh, what a science fiction novel does, for me anyway, when I read Freud. It cognitively estranges readers uh, in the way that, you know, if you recall that, that initial definition of science fiction by Darko Suvin, um, where there has to be some sort of novum, uh, for something to be science fiction. Uh, it's cognitively estranging. I won't get into all the dynamics of it. And there needs to be a novum. I mean, Freud does that again and again. And uh, But to, to answer your question, you know, tons of people were pulling from Freud, uh, especially in science fiction, and just trying to kind of tweak his ideas for their own ends. And there's, uh, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. 
Yeah. But uh, I mean, you, you don't think that that's the case that uh, Freud, Freud's well, influence. I mean, Freud had influence in multiple fields, but I do. There was a period there where he was really hot in science fiction. You know. Yeah, and I and I haven't studied him as post war kind of in the fifties. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't studied him as close as as I know. Well, I mean. Uh, you've written a biography of Freud, right? It, it, oh, well, that's, that's a biography of me more than Freud. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, those biographies are jokes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. But um, but you've thought more about Freud than I yeah, have. Yeah. So, for, no, so and I've read, I've read most of his case studies and stuff. But, uh, I, you know, yeah. I, I don't know. I Still, to this day, it, it's, geez, it would, I should start. You know, I should do an experiment where I, I teach a science fiction class and just assign my students wouldn't know it. They don't read. Uh, I just right. assign Freud as one of the texts. They and I'd be like, well, what is this? You know, science fiction author doing? I, I don't even know if they, they probably think it was a fiction. For sure. Right. Right. Well, and listen, what are the through lines into talking about the gender issues that Bester kind of had? Uh, a, a great way to look at it is. To, how silly he was about basically writing off the idea of women even liking science fiction, you know, because we know, especially if, you know, we're looking at Dr. Lisa Yazik's work and all the recovery of women science fiction is he kind of implies that, that women weren't, that they don't even like science fiction when there was, you know, dozens and dozens of regularly published very active women science fiction writers, right? And Lee Brackett's one of the biggest names in the biz at, at this time. And it's like he's completely dismissing that they would even like science fiction, let alone that there's, you know, women who have sold more books than him, you know, right? And so it's an interesting way to see how he's dismissing women just in the genre itself and then to look at how his paper thin women in this book are really you know kind of ugly constructions based yeah. on this kind of paper thin ideas that he has about women in general right yeah definitely and, and they're, they're stereotypes but it's interesting gully you know he constantly refers to gully as the stereotype common man but not constantly but two or three times in the book but it is a, re a recurrent reference uh whereas the women as you suggest all of the female characters are stereotypes of a sort. Uh, and I think what Bester was trying to do is to probably, well, not probably, definitely, to my mind, unsuccessfully. Um, he was probably trying to tie that in with Gully transcending all these cultural constructions, but he fails in that respect. Uh, and I, I even cite, Bester said some just, you know, shitty things about uh, um, what women basically about what women want. Uh, and I quote, quote them at length. And it's essentially, you know, a sort of madman thing that show Mad yeah. Men is right up the product of his culture, you could say. Right. But not, not that it excuses it. You know, it's easy to say someone's a product of their culture. Uh, but there were, you know, people at the same, well, like, like you mentioned, there were women doing lots, lots of women doing lots of interesting things as well. And, uh, um, you know, he yeah. sort of fancied himself as this alpha male at the same time and uh, uh, acted accordingly. Where at the same time, Henry Kuttner is, you know, and we see some things with like Henry Kuttner that he and his wife, C.L. Moore, are both successful writers. 
And if I, I've got a copy of some some books down here that they wrote together, where Henry Cutner's name is enormous on the cover, <laughs> and then it says with C. L. Moore, like super tiny, and it's like, you know, the genre had its problems at the time. Yeah. Right? And so his generalizations of women were ridiculous. That's the thing, and it comes out in the text with the two very paper thin characters who, you know. They're so paper thin that they can kind of the problems with these characters could fly by you. Yeah. And what, you're so there's there's three actually, right? Or no, there's four, but one of them. One of them is is that that girl Moria, part of the scientific people, but we don't see much of her. Uh, and the for when we do see her, uh, Gully almost rapes her. There's this whole thing with rape going on that's total, even in its context, is uh, um, no good. And Bester had a pro something was going on with him because it bleeds into other uh, um, stories, at least. That he well, wrote. he had rape in the title of one of his books, didn't he? One of the like, books was Tender Loving Rape that was eventually it was published posthumously as Tender Loving Rage, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, you know, he clearly had uh, uh, inappropriate issues with that. But but the other two girls uh, or female characters in, in the novel are three, excuse me, Robin Wednesberry, who basically all of them are, again, helpmeets, right? That uh, uh, sort of kick him along on his journey towards uh, being a, a star child. I'm going to stick with that uh, Kubrickian uh, metaphor there. But so there's Robin Wednesberry, uh Gisbella McQueen and Olivia Prestine. And Olivia is this the the sort of grotesque albino, or she's characterized as such, who really wants, we learn at the end, ever, you know, she hates humanity because people treated her like shit when she was younger. Uh, again, this is this is uh, just summer. Right. And look, none of none of these depictions of women and and the the, the violence are okay, they're terrible, they're right. awful. Bester couldn't, you know, he had to sort of hide all right? He couldn't yeah. come up and say, and this is one of the problems I had with gutter speak too. That's, that's not how gutter speak would sound. If it was real, if there was a real 25th century gutter speak, it would be a, 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 a rain of expletives. It, it would be a creative sort of explosion of expletives, you know, it would yeah. be I'm sure there would be new fucks and shits by that. Uh, but in any case, the, New fucks and shits by then, like yeah. What it's all about? Uh, <laughs> all kinds of new fucks and shits. Right. Yeah. Um, but you know, he could only say a certain amount, and I think he took great care in. Even though Gully seems to want to rape every woman that he comes in contact with, it always ends badly with him and women in this book. Uh, and that is often the case with with Bester's protagonists. There's there's always sort of strife of that nature. Uh, again, I do think that it's we could make the argument that it's connected. And this goes back to Freud, too, this whole notion of Freudian aggression that he's so fixated on and that really deeply informs his characters. What Gully does, and you could make this argument, despite, as you say, the, the uh, sort of horrors of gender representations in the book. It's all tied into this effort to transcend it all, you know. Right. Uh, uh, Freudian aggression is uh, well, you know, it's not Freud's aggression, but 
and civilization and, and its discontent. Yeah, an argument could be made that he's showing what a a shithole gully is as part of the process. Right. Like, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's critique through representation. Again, you could you could make that argument. I, I do think it's there though. You know? Yeah. And and now I do think he was trying to do that. You know, I actually had to quote you on this because the fact that you actually had to type the sentence, Bester was not a Nazi, but, uh, <laughs> you know. Oh, yeah. Okay, I remember. That, that was after one of his rants, right? I must have quoted a, a, a... No, no. I quoted him saying something about women, right? Like, or no, I, the right, race right, vanish, right, vanishing. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because yeah, sure. the race vanishing concept of the stars, my destination, like, is, would seem less ugly if some of the characters weren't so obviously white throughout no, this is this is what it seems like this is what it seems like what, well because he suggests the idea that race has vanished and then he has stereotypical like my main Indian question, character if, and a black if, character you well, know right, there, there's a few of those but at the same time race has vanished what does that mean well most people are white Right. Right. Exactly. That's why you end up having to say, like, he's, he's not, not a Nazi, but it sure sounds like he's putting forward. Exactly. Like, it seems yeah. like the, the 21st century, uh, uh, you know, humanity is this kind of Aryan nation with a few black people and some Native Americans, as far as I can tell. And maybe one Asian guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. And uh, now that- he doesn't come out. And of course, the narrator doesn't come out and say these things. But and Bester doesn't. Uh, doesn't go into too much detail in terms of what the quote unquote vanishing point. And I, I can't remember. I think that might be my, my, my expression for it. Uh, I don't know if he mentions it in the book, but if there is this vanishing point wherein, uh, 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 you know, difference disappears, what does it look like? And that's what I was kind of uh, addressing and exploring in, in my. Right. Yeah. Well, and uh, another thing that you say in the book that's, that I think really brings up a lot of issues and, you know, obviously, clearly, we're getting to the <clears throat> kind of the end of, of you know, and, and, and look, I, I really feel that people are going to get a lot out of if they're already fans of the stars, my destination, they're going to get a lot out of reading your book. But also, if they've never read it before, and they want to read it and get a finer understanding for it, there's so much there to help out. Um, one of the things that you talk about towards the end is that he's kind of saying something about religion in every chapter of the book. He's, he's commenting on religion throughout, which kind of sets up the ending, which we'll get to the ending in a little bit, but he's commenting on religion, different religions in different ways throughout the book there. They can be subtle and missed, but this is something that you're obviously writing about. So talk to us about his commenting on religion. Sure. I mean, he pulls from from different religions, but the main his main beef is with Christianity, and this actually uh, feeds into the whole Nietzschean overman thing too. Once again, religion is just another uh, uh, cultural construction. It doesn't sort of have any valence or meaning in a, of itself. It well, I guess this is what I <laughs> what I think, and and it, it, what is sort of represented in the book. Uh, it is you know, uh, an illusion, basically, something that needs to be transcended. One of my favorite expressions of Nietzsche's is, uh, or aphorisms, uh, mankind is something that needs to be overcome. What have you done to overcome him? 
Uh, and that might be the biggest thing that Bester in this book is connecting or, or hitching to this whole notion of transcendence, right? Ultimately, right. that's what, if there if there was a main theme, that's what I would choose: transcendence of of class, of gender, of race, of uh, religion, right? Of all of our uh, sort of institutions and apparatuses uh, that we put into place for various reasons. Something like religion. Well, I have my own. Uh, uh, <laughs> as I get older, I tend to have stronger beliefs about belief of any kind. Uh, my thesis personally is belief is the end of reason and the beginning of evil. Uh, if you look at the history of humanity, of course, well, what's responsible for more bloodshed than religion? And to some degree, the, the book is uh, citing that thesis, well, asserting rather that thesis as well. By the time we get to the end, Bester starts throwing around that term belief. Uh, and what Gully comes to realize is not to believe in any sort of social institution or messiah. Uh, he, he says something like, I want to believe in belief itself, whatever the fuck that means. I mean, that, that, that's actually kind of stupid. But basically what he's saying, I think, is, <laughs> you know, I believe in me. I'm special now. You know, I really worked hard right. to myself and transcend all this stuff. Here I am. And now I'm worthy of believing in myself and, you know, leading a productive life. Well, and, you know, it's funny because I was thinking about this and uh, this must have pissed off Phil. And I'm wondering if Phil pointed to, to the stars, my destination with Wolheim, because, um, you know, a year later, he submits Eye in the Sky to Wolheim and Wolheim's like, take all the Christianity out. <laughs> and that editorial fuckery almost ruined Eye in the Sky because the whole like Bob at like Baha'i faith thing instead of Christianity and eye in the sky is one of the worst cases of editorial fuckery that, and I get why Wolheim did it. He didn't want to piss off Christians and Christian America, but in, in Phil's career, it's the worst editorial fuckery that he dealt with. Right. And yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if Phil would have just been like, Hey dude, look, look at stars, my destination, like a year ago, like, what year is that? When, when was it? 57 it came out. So okay. it would have been two years after Stars of My Destination. And if Stars of My Destination could be like a major science fiction novel and kind of just like put up middle fingers to Christianity, you know. Oh, it totally does. Like he equates religion with, you know, sort of opiate of the masses kind of thing with the, the seller Christians. He, he best or directly equates them with drugs and, you know, uh, hallucinogens and the whole, uh, well, geez, sort of leading up to psychedelic culture of the 1960s, you know. And I wish because at that point when Phil did Eye in the Sky, he hadn't sold to anyone else. So so he put up with Wolheim's shit at that point. But like and look, I, I'm pro Don Wolheim in general, but I just think he made a mistake. That's precisely the sort of editorship that Bester would have rallied against. And, uh, you know, I, I think a lot of it for Bester goes back to, he, pu he published this had predated stars. Uh, Adi and it was the name of the story through Campbell, you know? Yeah. And he, he was very enamored with him and, and all of this. And they had a, a meeting together and he told him to remove, I think it was all the Freudian references from it. And Bester, you know, this was when he was young. It was, it predated all of his novels. This is when he was just trying to break in, right? Right. But at the meeting where Campbell was telling him, you know, what he needed to do to get the story published, 
he tried to hook him on Dianetics as this, not just, you know, uh, uh, as a writer, but as, uh, uh, you know, a practice, because apparently that was, uh, uh, you know, a new uh, thing then. Hubbard, Hubbard's bullshit was, not, yeah, uh, coming into prominence, and he was real big on that. And Bester walked away from that meeting going, hey, Jesus Christ, what did I get into here? But he, did, he changed the story. And then the, a year later, when it was republished and he had the rights to it, he changed it back. So it's too bad filled. It's too bad Dick didn't do that as well, you know. Yeah, well, he had moved on. I think he had like I've already written four other personal cosmos novels since then. So, yeah. you know, I you know he probably saw it as I fixed that doing Ubik, and I fixed it doing. Yeah, yeah, that's true. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, like because he did all those other personal cosmos stories, Three Stigmata, whatever. But okay, so at the end. And we're getting to the end of the stars, of my destination Gully's rise to godliness kind of invalidates God. It's a huge part of it, but that journey at the end is everything it's leading up to. And so like, it's funny because like the big crescendo of the novel is a big middle finger to religion, which is yeah. one of the things that, you know, or at least, or, you know, organized religion, organized religion. Yes. But the idea of, you know, this character becomes this, like, the, it could also be looked as, as a, a John W. Campbell superhuman thing, too. It can be looked upon as that now he's the ultimate star traveler. He's a star child. There's, there's all kinds of different ways you can take this ending. Yeah. So let's talk about this ending. Yeah, it, it's, and it's ambiguous. It basically, we, we see he's, he's left in a state of becoming at the end. And again, as the star child is at the end of 2001, we just see this star child, Dave Bowman becomes the star child. We don't know what's going to happen after that. And that's in Bester's work. He does that uh, um, same thing in The Demolished Man, right? He's demolished and uh, he's got to be rebuilt in the end. And he's, he did that in num numerous stories as, as well. No, but you never see. And I mentioned this in I can't remember which chapter it is. Gully metaphorically dies and is reborn at least, 11, I think, 10 or 11 times throughout the, the book. And uh, this is the, the last occasion. And basically, it, I mean, if you, if you think about it in those terms, that's kind of his thing is to die and be reborn. If he's, be, if he's reborn as a god, well, Gully ceases to exist. That's, you can't go anywhere from there. Yeah, and he already changed his name and he, you know, for part of his yeah. revenge plot. And that's right. Yep. Yeah. So, you know. I, I, and and the other thing is, how do you effectively, you know, truly represent godliness? I mean, can you can you do it? Uh, uh, and what does it look like? That's why uh, one of the reasons I think one of the many reasons Kubrick does and, and Clark didn't do it in two thousand one. Nor do they do. I don't even know two thousand ten or three thousand one or any of it. Uh, I have read still, all those. <laughs> I don't even remember 3001 in 2010. Uh, geez, I don't even know what the hell that is or what it's what it's for. That's more. Well, it's a, funny. 3001 has the same ending as Independence Day, which is kind of hilarious. But. Really? Yeah, I don't, I don't remember it. <laughs> um, but no, for, 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 for Gully's sake, um, it works in terms of the, uh, you know, at the end of. Thus spoke Zarathustra. What happens? Well, the whole book, you know, Zarathustra's talking and, and, and philosophizing and all of this. And 
he's in a cave, right? And, and at the end, he, he comes out of the cave into the, into the sunlight. And, and of course, that's where the book ends. <laughs> uh, again and again, I mean, can you, can, you, can you think of a book where somebody, you know, becomes a, a god, not just like Superman or whatever, you know, where they develop superpowers, but a sort of godlike, authentically transcendent being? I, I can't think of one. And, and then proceeds to go, I don't know, do some shit. Uh, it usually, it, you, I'm sure there's something uh, uh, that people have done uh, on more than one occasion, but I can't think of any off the top of my head. For the most part, it kind of ends there. That's the end of the of the proverbial um, uh, man. What is it? Man with a thousand faces. Our, our monomyth. Our monomythic journey. Right. If you if you get involved in the god business, uh, it ends when you become a god because there's nothing else to do and nowhere else to go. Which is one of the problems why the sequels to, for example, for The Matrix never lived up to that last moment. Precisely. You can make, absolutely, you can make the argument there, too. God, you know, in the Bible, in the Christian Bible, God fucks things up again and again. And what happens when you become God? Well, it fucks up narrative. What are you going to do? Because, you know, nothing... When Neo takes off flying at the end of the Matrix, it's like your imagination's like, oh, well, now we've got this amazing story that's about to take place because Neo's become like a god in the Matrix. And then, the, the thing he has, has because in order to make those the, the rest of the movies, they have to make him less godlike than he was at the end of the initial film. Right. That's the only way to do it. Because at that point, like, you know, he can't do a sequel to the story because it'll never live up to that moment of like, you know, there's nowhere to go from there. Right. Yeah. The stars, my destination reloaded. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, you know, if, if a movie got made, then maybe someone would try, but <laughs> you know, but that being said, um, uh, do tell people because I think uh, your press, what you're doing, you've also reprinted a bunch of the Barry Maltzbergs. You've published James Reich, who, um, I think his his novel uh, songs my enemy sings has already been a dick like suggestion on the show and I definitely think dick readers would would love that book so tell people about uh, AOP and what you got going on there and uh, how people can find you online uh, yeah James incidentally is going to be writing the introduction to my new biography on Nietzsche which is going to be the fourth in that dipshit series that I'm on. Uh, <laughs> But he's actually a really wonderful literary uh, uh, novelist who I just love and certainly uh, underappreciated. <clears throat> and uh, working with other people recently out, or no, it's not out yet. There are review copies of a collection of essays by Eugene Bacon, an African-Australian, um, excuse me, female writer of speculative fiction. And she actually has a I think a, a, a writing text on, on writing speculative fiction um, and several other books in the pipe. One from Steve Aylett. I don't know if you've been reading those comics. Apparently is writing comics exclusively now, but I'm going to do a reprint of his book of uh, uh, quotes from his own uh, uh, sort of megatext, the Aylett megatext with some new content in there uh, and some other things through Antiedipus Press for my part. This book is out, um, excuse me, the, the Bester Companion, that one on Minority Report, and then uh, the Nietzsche book will come out next year, and I'm hard at work more, more than anything every day. Most of my days are consumed with uh, Kubrick, who leaked into our discussion today, inevitably, 
I'm speaking of immersion. That's how I, that's the only way I can do it. I, I completely sort of walk, talk and think uh, uh, Kubrick. Uh, right after this, I'll put his, I'm always going through the movies. I just kind of start them from the beginning with, uh, fear and desire and go all the way through to eyes wide shut and AI and just keep sort of running them in the background while I do my uh, every day. I do a little writing on that. Again, that's for auteur publishing. The Arnold Wilson.com press.com. Uh, David, uh, I appreciate your time. Um, I'm sure the listeners would really enjoyed this. Um, uh, the stars, my destination is, is a classic for a reason, uh, problematic, but, uh, also powerful. And I do think it, it is Dick and Jason in that <clears throat> they were both dealing with, uh, some of the similar things. And in 1955, when Elvis shaking his hips was enough to send the country into controversy, the fact that they were, you know, that the world Jones made and the stars, my destination came out in the same year, you know, are, are signs that sci-fi was pushing boundaries in, in a way that uh, was really cool. So, um, and, and just to, if we, to leave on this note, I mean, one of the things that uh, Bester did effectively, especially with the stars, my destination is kind of lead into the whole new wave and cyber new waivers and cyberpunks really uh, took to him. He was definitely a predecessor who's, uh, and this book probably more than any other uh, really uh, informed those movements. Uh, Professor Wilson, it was wonderful to have you. Please uh, return to the Dickheads podcast whenever you feel like it. Um, And uh, I'm sure, thank you for joining us. Thank you, sir. And as always, Dickheads, keep it paranoid. Stay paranoid.